And now we're back to Exodus, and we're in a section. I'm going to take a rather lengthy section. I'm not going to read it all, but we're going to treat it representatively as we have some of the other sections of Exodus, some of the longer sections. But we're looking at the end of chapter 20 and the, all the way up to part of chapter 23. And uh, you'll see quickly why I'm, these are all hanging together here. So let me pray. I won't read the text beforehand, but let me just pray, and then we'll begin uh, looking at this section of Exodus. Let's pray. Now, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Some of you have probably started this year or other years reading through the Bible. I do that. I I start every January 1st with a a plan to read through the New Testament, the Old Testament, and in different ways, different plans. But some of you have probably done that, or maybe not January, but just at some point you've said, I'm going to read the Bible straight through. And you start off and you read through Genesis, and there's some unusual things in Genesis, but it's, it's a captivating story, and you, you're cruising through Genesis, and then Exodus, you're cruising through Exodus as well, the, the, the Exodus from Egypt, the plagues, and the, the, the provision of God in the desert, and then you get to the, the Ten Commandments, and you say, I recognize these, and God's giving his, his good law to his people. And then if there's anywhere where you're going to start grinding to a halt, it's going to be in the text of today because it reads like a book of statutes, precisely because it's a book of statutes. And if you've ever tried to read statutes, there's a statute of the state of Florida about condominiums that I want to read because it affects me uh, and my, my house and finances and so on. But it's like 88 pages long, and I just can't bring myself to read this thing because it's a book of Statutes. Well, that's what we have here, this book of statutes. And as we read through these laws, these commandments, these, these assignments, these regulations, we can have various reactions. I think these are common reactions. One, we just think they're tedious. They're difficult reading. They're not, they're not narrative. They're not stories. They're tedious to read. Another is we, we might look at some of these and just say, these are wrong. These seem wrong to me because they're so far out of our cultural context. For example, the, the laws about slaves or indentured servants and treating the male ones this way and the female ones that way, it, it, they, they may seem wrong to us. Other times, we may recognize these legal codes in our legal codes. We find things here and we say, wow, they discovered this years and years, centuries, millennia before we did. For example, the difference between manslaughter and intentional murder. We find that in these codes. Uh, Others, we might find, we may look at these laws and these codes and say, wow, these are much better than we have on our statute books. For example, when we get to theft, if somebody steals something, they have to pay it back with a penalty. Well, what do we do? Well, we put them in jail. And so we might say, well, this this was much more enlightened and this was much better than what we have on our statute books. And we have others that we read these and we say, this sounds a lot like Jesus. This, this sounds like New Testament ethics, such as loving your enemies. Some of them simply leave us mystified. Why three times in, in the, the books of uh, Moses, the first five books, does it say not to boil a kid goat in its mother's milk? Why? Why is it so important that it's three times in there? There are things like that that just mystify us, and we don't know what they're about. Now, in this section today, there are about 100 different scenarios 
100 different scenarios. You'll find this, if this happens, if somebody does this, if that, if that, then. It's a lot of conditional, if this, then that. And we're not going to cover all of these today. I commend this whole section to you to read. But we're going to look at some representative laws. But I want you to see something very fascinating about these laws. And these laws, by the way, are often called the Book of the Covenant. The Book of the Covenant because next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at Exodus chapter 24. And in Exodus chapter 24, verse 7, it says, He took the Book of the Covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. What was that Book of the Covenant? Well, it was likely what we've just read, uh, the Ten Commandments and these laws. And so what we're going to do is see that in this Book of the Covenant, After the Ten Commandments, it begins a certain way, then there are codes and laws, and then it ends a certain way, and it begins with worship, and it ends with worship. And I want you to see how this works, because we might just read through this and say, this is all about law-keeping and codes and so on, but it actually begins with worship, regulations for worship, and it ends with regulations for worship. It's bookended by worship. And so we're going to look at that, the beginning and the end, these bookends, and then we'll look at some sample laws in the middle. When we left off last year with chapter 20, after the people had received the Ten Commandments from the hand of Moses, they said in verse 19 of chapter 20, they said this to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. They were terrified, and they didn't want to hear from God. Now, when we come to this section, we pick up just three, four verses later, in verse 22 of chapter 20, And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel. So they just said, Don't talk to us, God. And what does he do? He talks to them. Rather than taking his marbles and leaving and saying, These people want nothing to do with me, he goes to them again. And he makes provision for them to worship him. They're a frightened people. And so he goes to them and he speaks to them again. And he opens up opportunity for them to approach him. That's compassionate on God's part. And notice what he does here. He talks about, first of all, a repetition of having only one God. You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings, your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. Every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. And he says, if you make an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. If you wield your tool on it, you'll profane it. You shall not go up on steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. Now, what is he doing here? He's telling them, worship me only, and I'm going to tell you how to worship me. I'm going to give you instructions so that you can know how to worship me. You, you frighten people that don't want me in your life. You're, you're saying, don't let the Lord speak to us. And I'm saying, come, come to me. And this is how you will do it with these altars. Now, um, these altars were temporary measures. These were earthen mounds. These were, these were unhewn stones piled up. These were temporary measures. And we will find later in Exodus that there is a more permanent measure for the people to approach God. There is the tabernacle, a central place of worship. There is the priesthood, and we'll find all about that in the rest of Exodus. And then there was eventually the temple, a physical building that was in Jerusalem, the place where people would go to worship God. But this temporary measure was there so that they would not be without a way to approach their God. 
But even, even the temple, even the tabernacle, those were temporary as well. And we will find, and I'm giving you kind of a, a this is a spoiler of what's coming, but uh, we can't avoid this kind of thinking as we are Christians. We, we take into account the New Testament. Even these temporary or more permanent measures were temporary. Even the tabernacle was temporary. It, it eventually decayed. Even the, the temple was temporary. It was eventually knocked down multiple times and then definitively in 70 AD. And the reason for that is because God finally made the way for the people to approach him permanently. And that is through Jesus Christ. If you look at Hebrews, which is something like a commentary on the book of Exodus and Leviticus, we read this in Hebrews 9, 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened. By the, the, the way wasn't opened completely yet because the, the temple was still standing. And he says, according to this arrangement, the temple arrangement, the tabernacle arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of the Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And so as we read these provisions in Exodus, we can say thanks be to God that he provided for them in those times, but those times pointed forward to the greater provision, the new and the lasting and the permanent way for us to approach God through faith in Jesus Christ and in his sacrifice for us. Now, that's, how, that's the first bookend. The, the other bookend is about, is about festivals. And if you go to chapter 23 verses 10 to 19, we find that there are five celebrations. He wanted his people to celebrate. He wanted his people to approach him, and he told them how they could do that, and he wanted his people to celebrate. And there were five celebrations. One took place, or was to take place. We don't know if they actually ever did this. It was to take place every seven years. They were to let the land rest every seven years. So there was a Sabbath of the land After six years of laboring the land, the animals, the servants, and everyone, they would take a year rest. And then uh, that was repeated every week as well. There was the weekly Sabbath. After six days of labor, there was one day of rest. And then there were three annual festivals. Uh, And these three annual festivals were at different times of the year. There was the spring, the summer, and the autumn festivals. And these were all had to do with bar, uh, different harvests, the barley harvest, the wheat harvest, and then the, the fruit harvest, the, 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 uh, the grapes, and so on. Now, all of these celebrations depended on, now think about this, all of these celebrations depended on God's abundant provision for his people. Can you imagine? I'm going to work six years and then just not work a seventh year, and I'll be fine. Now, that's hard for us to imagine unless maybe we're, we're nearing retirement or something like that. But, but just to, to say, we're not going to work this year. What's that depend on? It depends on God providing for them that entire year. And the same thing in miniature. Every week, every week, I, I'm going to work six days, but I'm going to trust the Lord to provide for me even though I'm not working this, this seventh day. God will provide for me. And then if you're going to celebrate... The, the barley harvest every year, what does that uh, presuppose? That there's a barley harvest. 
If you're going to celebrate the wheat harvest every year, what does that presuppose? That there's a wheat harvest. If you're going to celebrate the, the fruit harvest every year, what's that presuppose? That there's a fruit harvest. You see how all of these festivals, all of these celebrations, are expressions of God's goodness and his provision, and they're also, on the part of the people, they're expressions of faith in God, that he will provide all that his people need. Now, um, those are the bookends. Worship and worship in faith in God's provision. Approach God and celebrate God's goodness. Now, in the middle, we have all these laws. And there are different ways that people try to group these laws and explain how these laws work and so on. But I'm grouping them around a few different ideas. One is some of these are labor arrangements, labor arrangements. And these labor arrangements are some of the ones that we we scratch our heads on and maybe even say, this doesn't sound right to me. And if we, we look at the first group of laws, they're, in our translation, they're laws about slaves. Now, when we say the word slave, we immediately have a, a certain idea of slavery as it was practiced in modern times in the West, the African slave trade and how it was practiced in the, in the, in, in the United States and the other colonies uh, of, of the European powers. But this, it's, it's not quite that simple here uh, because this word slave could, could also just be translated as, as a servant. And then there's another word that's used for the female servants. It could be translated as a maid or something like that. So it's, it's not necessarily exactly what we have in our minds. What we seem to have here are various combinations of different categories. One would be indentured servitude indentured servitude where you agree to serve somebody for a certain number of years, and that's how it begins, verse 1 of chapter 21. Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. So that's, that's something like an indentured servitude arrangements where you sell your labor for a certain number of years, and then you go free. And sometimes that was used to, to get people back on their feet after a, after a difficult time. Also here, and this seems probably strange to us, but there also seems to be under this category something like arranged marriage. And that was common and is common in many cultures to this day. If you look at verse 7, when a man sells his daughter, and here it says as a slave, but it's, it's like a, a maid to another household, she shall not go out as the male slaves do or the indentured servants do if she does not please her master who has designated her for himself. In other words, he's, he's, he has paid something like a bride price beforehand so that she can join the family and be raised in that family in preparation for marriage. Then he shall let her be redeemed. Well, she can go back to her family. Uh, he shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people. She's not a slave in the sense that we would think of, where the master has the right to, to sell her to whomever he wants. He has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, maybe he's looking for a wife for his son, he shall deal with her as a daughter. And, and so this is, this is regulation of, of something like arranged marriage. And the, the other thing we can see in this is that it was a limited, even if it was, uh, some of this was what we would think of as slavery, it was a limited form. If you look at verse 26, it says, When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go because of his eye. 
If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of the tooth. This is not how slavery was practiced in much of the world or even in our in modern times. So, so this wasn't an absolute sort of slavery. And this, this, these, these provisions, as strange as they might seem to us, recognize two things. They recognize the economic value of people. That people have economic value. We, we produce things. And uh, that children have economic value. That husbands, that men have economic value. That women have economic value. And we have intrinsic value as image of God. That's why if you mistreat the slave, that slave goes free. Because, because this, is not, this is not just a piece of property. This is image of God. And so, so there is a recognition here of economic value and, and intrinsic value, even as our own tax and law codes recognize these things. Why do, why do parents get tax breaks for having more children? Because children, for a country, have economic value. And so, uh, so countries want to invest in more children because they have economic value as well as intrinsic value. And I want to point out one more thing about the slavery, and that is in verse uh, 20, oh, I'm sorry, 16, um, kidnapping for slave trading was absolutely uh, forbidden. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. And so we see here that this was very different from how slaving is all often done. This is a different sort of arrangement. And so slave kidnapping and slave trading was, was, uh, was forbidden. Now, uh, this is interesting that it starts with slave regulations or servant regulations, and that's really appropriate. What had the Israelites recently been for 400 years? Slaves. And so it was appropriate that the first thing that God do is regulate because what was the idea that they had of slavery? Well, they had the Egyptian idea of slavery. They had the idea where the master could put the slaves to death, throw them in the river to kill their children or whatever it might be. And so it's appropriate that God regulate this, this universal human practice in the day, that he regulate it for this people that only had one, one very abusive idea of labor relationships. Now, that's one category. Some of the laws, actually many of the laws, assigned penalties to violations of the Ten Commandments. We saw the Ten Commandments in the beginning of chapter 20. And what we have here are are the statutes that, well, if somebody breaks one of these commandments, then what happens? And, and, And so we have kind of a spelling out here of what happens if somebody breaks one of the Ten Commandments in the nation of Israel. If you look at verse 12, you find a penalty for the Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder. Verse 12, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. So capital punishment for murder. Also, severe violations of the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother, were also capital crimes. If you look at uh, verse uh, 15, it says in verse 20, uh, chapter 21, whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Verse 17, whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. So in the nation of Israel, these were, these were capital crimes, violations of the fifth and sixth commandments. Lesser personal injuries received punishments that fit the damage. And if you look at this, is one of the, the best-known sections here, verses 23 to 25. If there is harm, if there's some, some harm, physical harm, but not, not death, if there's harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And sometimes people look at this and say, this is barbaric. But the whole idea is here is that the punishment fits 
the crime. If you cause this damage to another person, you receive the same sort of damage. So this was a limiting kind of regulation here. It, it, was, it, was, it was forbidding that vengeance goes beyond the kind of damage that was caused. Violations of the Eighth Commandment, which is you shall not steal. There is a whole section on what to do if someone steals, and it's based on the principle of retribution um, or a restitution of, of, of paying back. So if I steal something from you, then I need to pay it back to you with a penalty. And so there are all sorts of things. If you borrow something, or, and if the owner's there present and that, that, that borrowed ox dies in the owner's presence, uh, or if someone is, something is entrusted to you and it's stolen and you lose it, there are all sorts of scenarios here that have to do with, with equity in terms of, of property. And they're just basically spelling out what happens if there is a material loss and uh, how can that be remedied. There is also, uh, taken into account here, there is penalty for the violations of the first commandment, you shall know the gods before me, and the second commandment, you shall not worship idols. If you look at chapter 22, verse 20, it says here, whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Also, uh, there is... In the ninth commandment, uh, you shall not commit, uh, you shall not bear false witness. There, there is a section here, a couple sections in chapter 23, that talk about how to resist pressures to pervert justice in the law court. And if you look at these, these are very prudent. So don't, uh, don't be on the side of the poor just because he's poor, but don't be against the poor just because he's poor. And so it's, it's trying to, to say don't, don't go with the crowd here. Don't bear into pressure, but you need to bear true witness in law-keeping. And there, there are other laws like that. This is just kind of a sampling, but this is kind of regulations for violations of the various commandments. Now, um, there are other laws here that were specifically designed to to protect the disadvantaged from being abused. And this is, is very compassionate. Sometimes you read some of these and you say, this is harsh, this is cruel, but then you read these other laws and you find that these are very compassionate. Uh, if you look at chapter 22, verses 21 and following, you find this, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child, If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. And then if you look at at, uh, chapter 23, verse 9, you shall not oppress a sojourner for you know the heart of a sojourner for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. These are laws to keep the abused from becoming abusers the oppressed from becoming oppressors. And there are two laws that stand out because they anticipate Christ's teaching about loving enemies. If you look at chapter 23, verses 4 and 5, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. That sounds very similar to what we find in Matthew chapter chapter 5 verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and then they added to that and hate your enemy. That's not in scripture. They added that in Jesus day. But I say to you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. 
For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In what sense? In loving enemies. And in fact, Jesus not only told us to love our enemies, but he loved his enemies. And he loved his enemies by laying down his life for his enemies in Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if we were enemies, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And we see, we see anticipations of this back in these, these codes back in Exodus. Now, what do we do with all these? We're reading through these. We're Christians. We're no longer living in the nation of Israel. Jesus has come. What do we do with all these? And this is actually one of the most controversial questions among Christians. What is the place of the Old Testament law in the lives of believers? And you will find all sorts of postures among Christians about this. There are some who say nothing to do with us. They don't apply to us. They're not part of our Christian experience. Others, on the other side, they, they follow even some of the ceremonial laws from the Old Testament and think that, that Christians are still obligated to, to follow these, these dietary restrictions and, and things about dress and so on. And others want to take these laws and impose them not only on Christians but also on non-Christians and say that they're obligated to keep these as well. Now, um, there is a, a document that, that we, we Presbyterians historically appreciate because in the 1600s this was formulated and, and the best minds in the United Kingdom got together and they tried to figure out these thorny issues and to, to, have, to, to, to declare a confession of faith. And in the Westminster Confession of Faith, it deals with the law and it has a helpful way to deal with the law. And it says this, it says there are three kinds of laws, three kinds of laws. There are moral laws that are always, always abiding, and they're always in place because they reflect God's character. You shall not murder. That's a moral law. Uh, and there are also ceremonial laws. There are the laws about the altars. There's the law about the, 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 the three different feasts, the law about the, the sacrifices and the temple and so on. And it says those laws were all pointing forward to Jesus. And we already saw how that works in Hebrews. They're all pointing forward to Jesus. And so it's not that those laws were bad. It's that they're, they're obsolete because they were fulfilled. They did their job. They pointed to Jesus and Jesus fulfilled them all. So we are no longer obligated to follow those. But then there are other laws that are civil laws for the nation of Israel as a political body. And it says, well, when you go to the judges of the people of Israel, well, we don't have the judges of the people of Israel because we're not the, the a political nation of Israel. And it says those laws extinguished, they were done with the, with the end of the, the political existence of the people of God as a political nation. It's, but it does say, unless, except for the equity that's taught in those laws. So, for example, there are laws, we didn't read them here, but if you dig a pit 
and somebody's animal falls into it, then you're responsible to pay for that animal. And so what's the general equity of that? If you have a swimming pool, well, then, then put a fence around it so that nobody gets hurt. If you have, if you have a construction site, then, then put a fence around it so that people don't get, get ripped up on the rebar or something like that. So there is a genu, uh, ge- general equity expressed in some of these laws, but it's not that, that we have these exact laws for us as well. So moral laws, ceremonial laws, and civil laws. And we saw some of those in today's text. Don't worship other gods. Don't strike your parents. What kind of a law is that? Moral, ceremonial, or civil? That's a good one. Yes, exactly. Is that still abiding? I can put it that way. Is it always the case? Yes. So this is moral law. Okay. Um, what um, What about building altars and the three annual feasts? Moral, ceremonial, or civil? Ceremonial, okay. Well, what about um, charging a thief several times what he stole? That's a civil law, and it may still be a good idea. And so it may be that we want to adopt that, but it's not that we're under that exactly anymore. Now, this is what we need to do as we're reading through these laws. Sometimes it's very obvious, as this test I just gave you, 100%. Good job, everybody passed, right? Sometimes it's very obvious. Other times it's not so obvious in which category this might fit. And so there's, there's work to be done there. But there's a deeper problem. And this deeper problem is probably even more, more prevalent in, in the West, in the United States and in the West. Because in the West, we are very big about being autonomous. The word autonomous comes from auto, self, and the word nomos, which is law. And so autonomous means what? I am a law unto myself. So apart from the difficulty of figuring out which laws still apply, that's a technical, that's an interpretive difficulty, but there's a heart difficulty as well. And that is the resistance to God reigning over our lives. And and as I've come back to the United States and talked with people, some of the most distressing conversations I've had are among those who say, well, I'm a Christian, and then they go on to say, but I do things how I want to do things. I'm a Christian, but, but I'm not under obligation. That, that's, that's old covenant kind of stuff, that law-keeping stuff. I, I am free to do whatever I want. And so the problem is not so much figuring out which laws apply, but recognizing God's right to command his people to live in certain ways, to obey his commandments. And today's text makes something very, very clear. Apart from the question of what abides and what doesn't abide, what's been fulfilled, what's been abrogated, what continues, it makes very clear that God reserves the right to tell his people how to live, and that way is the best way for his people. And until we understand that, we won't say with the psalmist, like in Psalm 119, O Lord, how I love your law. We won't say that until we recognize God's, God's right to reign over us, to tell us how to live, and that his way is absolutely the best for us. Only then will we say, oh, how I love your law. And this is not, this is not merely an Old Testament sort of thing. We read in our New Testament reading earlier where Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And then, and then we find in 1 John 
1 John chapter 2, verse 3, and this is how we know that we have come to know him, that is Jesus, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, and this is the, the distressing conversations I've had, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, in addition, in addition to this this rebellious tendency to want to be self-law, self-ruled, autonomous, There is, among Christians, a noble desire, and I appreciate this, a noble desire to protect the gospel, protect the gospel and distinguish it from law-keeping, because it's easy for there to be a confusion about what the gospel is. And in some periods of the church, the gospel became simply another law. Do this, and God will be happy with you. But we need to be careful here. Law-keeping in and of itself is not legalism. Law-keeping, in order to save ourselves before God, to achieve status before God, to achieve recognition and acceptance by God, that's legalism. And that's the problem. It's the purpose of law-keeping. Law-keeping in and of itself, if it's God's law, is a good thing. It's commanded in the Old Testament and commanded in the New Testament. But we need to recognize that law-keeping is not and has never been the way to be declared, accepted, and righteous before God. That's the gospel. And the gospel is actually a message about law-keeping, but not our law-keeping, but Jesus' law-keeping. You see, the message of the gospel is that there is a man, a man, a human fully human, and he kept the law of God perfectly. And then he died as if he were the worst of all transgressors of the law. And he did both of those things in our place. He kept the law in the place of his people. He died as a law transgressor in the place of his people, and then he rose again from the dead. That's the gospel. It's an announcement about what Jesus did, but he did it in keeping the law for us and in suffering the penalty of the law in our place. Those who believe in Jesus receive forgiveness of all of our sins, all of our failure to keep the law, but we also receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that in John, the text we read earlier, I will come to you, I will give you the Holy Spirit, and if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So what are the, what are the What are we given? We're given forgiveness of all our sins, but we're given a new life. We're given the possibility of living in a a different and and superior way. We're given the tracks on which to run. And what are those tracks on which we run? It's God's law as interpreted by Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament. And what's the engine for running on those tracks? It's the Holy Spirit that God has given to us. So he doesn't just give us laws that are impossible. He gives us laws and he gives us himself in the spirit so that we might walk in his ways and show that we are truly his disciples. So where do we end? Where do we end with this consideration of this this book of the covenant in Exodus? We end where we began. We We end with worship. This section began with worship. It ended with worship. And we end this section with worship. Worshiping God for the 
the goodness that he has shown to us in providing for all our needs in Jesus Christ and providing for our forgiveness and also providing for our new life. He's given us his son extravagantly in the gospel and practically for day-to-day living in his good and holy and wonderful law. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for Jesus. We always, we always say that. As we come to the end of any text, we thank you for Jesus. Because he is the, he is the end, the, 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 the purpose of the law. It all pointed to him, and he summed it up, and he fulfilled it. And now he gives us forgiveness to all who are in him. So I pray for all of us that we would give up legalism, that we would give up trying to achieve status before you by by our law-keeping, and that we would trust in Jesus' law-keeping and his death as a lawbreaker in our place. And we thank you, O God, that your law still abides, that you don't leave us without a guidebook for life, but rather you tell us how to live, how to do relationships, how how to do manual labor or service labor or whatever kind of labor we do, how to interact with others, how to treat other people's possessions. You, you give us all sorts of, of regulations and guides so that we know how to love you and how to love one another. And we pray, O oh God, that, that we would be able to say, how I love your law, O oh God, because we find in it what is best for our lives and we find in it an expression of your beauty and your perfection. Lord, we we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he opened for us a new and living way that is permanent. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit who enables us to walk in the commandments that Christ has given us. We pray in his name. Amen.